Morning. Okay, we are going to move on in the book of Kings. We're still in the book of Kings. Uh, we are in 2 Kings now. Actually, when, the, when this was originally written, it was just one book. It was separated later down the line. But for your sakes and for what we're used to, we are still in, the book, in our Kings series in the se- book of 2 Kings. Now, uh, last week, Pastor Nate discussed how God supernaturally called Elijah home, took him home to heaven, and he did that with this great whirlwind, okay? And because of this miraculous departure, it left Elisha, which was kind of his trainee, uh, in charge. He was supposed to take his place. So if you think about it, Elisha had to be super intimidated. I mean, we're, he had some really big shoes to fill here. Think about this. I mean, Elijah had taken on 450 prophets of Baal and won, right? He had called fire down from heaven, right? He, he, he stopped it from raining for three years, so he's taking some big shoes here. We're talking, he is, he's stepping into some huge shoes. It has to be, I mean, just at least a little bit uh, intimidating. But there's something that's really important that you remember as you read about these great men of God. Uh, and that is that great men of God are great because of God. Okay, it's something you have to remember. They're not great in and of themselves. They're great because of God. Now, the relationship between Elijah and Elisha, which, you know, it's inevitable. I'm going to screw those two up eventually, right? It's just inevitable. But the... The relationship between Elijah and uh, Elisha reveals two things that I think we often overlook. First of all, it reveals the importance of really investing in the spiritual success of someone else. Because you're going to see Elisha do some amazing things. And it's easy to forget that Elijah really invested in him spiritually to help him become that successful. I mean, God put this person in his life, and he really invested in him. And the second thing I think this reveals is there's a common denominator in every successful Bible personality, and that common denominator is God. And the truth is, God wants to use all of us just as powerfully as he used Elijah, just as powerfully as he used Elisha. But in order to be used like Elijah, we have to have the faith and the willingness of Elijah. And unfortunately, you just don't see that kind of faith much anymore. Now, last week, we're going to read a couple verses from last week, but last week, uh, we read how Elisha began his ministry First of all, by morning, and then with a miracle. 2 Kings chapter 2, starting in verse 11, says, As they were going along and talking, behold, there appeared a chariot of fire and horses of fire, which separated the two of them. And Elijah went up by a whirlwind to heaven. Elijah saw it and cried out, My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. And he saw Elijah no more. Then he took hold of his own clothes and tore them in two pieces. Now notice how deeply Elisha mourned when he knew that he was being taken home. He calls him my father, my father. And that's because this was his mentor. I mean, this man had invested a lot of time in him. He loved Elijah like a father. And he was going to miss him. And, and he tore his garments, which was, a, you know, which was a, a, an illustration of mourning to the, to the Israelites. This meant that he was in deep mourning. But when he took up Elijah's mantle... It was evident that God was going to be powerfully with him, just like he was with Elijah. Look at 2 Kings chapter 2, starting verse 13. It says, He also took up the mantle of Elijah that fell uh, from him and returned and stood by the bank of the Jordan. He took the mantle of Elijah that fell from him and struck the waters and said, Where is the Lord, the God of Elijah? And when he also had struck the waters, they were divided here and there, and Elisha crossed over. Okay, so Elisha took his mantle and immediately performs a miracle. He parts the waters, like Elijah had done, like Moses had done. He parted the waters and walked through. Okay, now, it's important that we don't miss the real message here. 
Okay, it's really important here. The message isn't about how powerful Elijah is or was, and and it's not about how powerful Elisha was or was becoming. It was about how God can empower anyone with the faith and willingness to do amazing things. That's what we're going to have to take away from this. That's really important that you remember that. Now, today's message I entitled, uh, Bearing Burdens Can Be a Bear. That's going to make sense later. Okay, that's going to make sense later. Because today we're going to see Elijah take Elijah's place and begin bearing Israel's burdens, which, if you read about Israel, any of the men of God had a rough job. You know, they were, they were a difficult nation to care for. But Elisha also found out that there's some leadership issues that can be a bear, and we'll, we'll look at that here in a minute, but you'll figure that out. So let's jump into today's message. That's a, it wasn't a real fast brief recap, but it was a recap. All right, so 2 Kings chapter 2, starting in verse 15, it says, Now when the sons of the prophets who were at Jericho opposite him saw him, they said, The spirit of Elijah rests on Elisha. And they came to meet him and bowed themselves to the ground before him. They said to him, Behold now, there are with you servants, fifty strong men. Please let them go and search for your master. Perhaps the Spirit of the Lord had taken him up and cast him on some mountain or in some valley. And he said, You shall not sin. That basically means don't go. There's no reason for you to go. Right? Verse 17, But when they urged him until he was ashamed, so basically they were saying, Seriously, you don't even want to look for him? Which makes him look like, oh, you don't really care. So they were kind of, you know, guilt tripping. And moms, we know how to do that. Dads, right? We know guilt trip. Well, that's what he was getting here, right? So, uh, but when they had urged him uh, until he was ashamed, he said, send or go ahead and go. They sent, therefore, 50 men, and they searched three days but did not find him. They returned to him while he was staying in Jericho. And he said to them, did I not say to you, do not go? This is one of those I told you so. He's basically saying, I tried to tell you that it was a complete waste of time looking for him. God took him to heaven. Were you paying attention? You know, that's basically what he was saying. Now, a couple things. Why did these young men who witnessed Elijah taken up want to look for him? Okay, there's the obvious thing we see here, but why would they want to look for him? They saw a whirlwind come and take him up. They knew that God had taken him up to heaven. So why would they want to do that? And there are several theories on this I want to share with you. Uh, And I'm not saying any of them are wrong, but there's several theories. But some say that they knew God took him, but they thought they may find his body somewhere. Which is kind of strange. So they're basically saying God took him up in this whirlwind and then took his soul and threw the body away. You know, which kind of makes sense because, you know, they believe that the spirit moved on, not this body. Right. So it kind of makes sense why they may have believed that. Right, so if there was a body laying somewhere of a great prophet, it would be the right thing to do to find him and give him a proper burial. So that's one thing uh, that some people think, right? And some say that Elisha couldn't be Elijah's successor until it was proven that Elijah, that Elijah was really gone, was really dead. And that also makes sense because Elijah had a lot of loyal followers, and it would probably be tough for them to follow somebody else until they knew, until they knew for a fact that, you know, he was done, right? But most likely, it's just as simple as it sounds— Uh, they had to make sure he just wasn't transported somewhere, right? Because remember, in his ministry, we'll look at this if you want to turn to 1 Kings chapter 8. In his ministry, God took him one time and transported him somewhere, and when this man was talking to him, he was worried it was going to happen again, right? 1 Kings 18, 12, it says, It will come about that when I leave you, that the Spirit, capital S, of the Lord, will carry you where I do not know, so that when I come and tell Ahab, and he cannot find you, he will kill me, although I, your servant, have feared the Lord from my youth. Right? So 
these young men, more than likely, it's just like the text tries to explain, I, I think more than likely they were just saying, I'm pretty sure he went to heaven, but let's just make sure God didn't transport him somewhere and he's not alive on some mountaintop somewhere waiting on us to look for him. You know, so that's probably why that they wanted to look for him. So they sent uh, 50 men, 50 men, and they searched for three days and couldn't find it. And once they couldn't find him with 50 men, they realized, okay, he was taken away into heaven. So everybody's on the same page. Now they can actually get to work. Okay, now, but before we move on, there's another point we can take from the prophets looking for Elijah. Okay, and that is, it's not always easy for our natural minds to understand the supernatural, is it? Have you ever noticed that sometimes we try to make everything make sense to us before we'll believe it? You ever catch yourself doing that? And that's what was going on here, at least a little bit. Remember, Jesus told the disciples time and time again, listen, I'm going to be taken, I'm going to be killed, and on the third day, I'm going to rise again. He told them that time and time again. He told them that right before he was arrested. Yet when he was crucified, they ran for their lives and mourned his death like they didn't believe he was going to defeat death. I mean, he, they had seen him walk on water. They had seen him heal people. They would seen all the things that he could do. Yet, it was just hard for their, for their carnal minds, their, their, their worldly minds, natural minds, to, to grasp this supernatural that Jesus, that someone was actually going to be dead and live again. It was just hard for them to grab that, right? And with us, sometimes it's easy to believe God's promises in theory. In theory, we like to believe God's promises. God says he's going to take care of us. He's going to protect us. He's going to provide for us. And we say that with such conviction, and we believe that theory. But sometimes it's difficult to apply that belief, right? Because when it comes time to apply them, the enemy starts whispering in our ear. You know what I mean? Now, we believe that God will provide. We believe that he'll protect. We believe he can do miracles. But the enemy starts whispering in our ears, and he whispers doubts, and he whispers uncertainties, and he, and he whispers fears into our ears. Right? Because Satan knows how emotions like grief and anxiety can weaken our faith if we're not careful. He knows that. Right? So he tells us things like, seriously, do you really believe that God is going to heal you? You have fourth-stage cancer. You want to know the statistics, Chris? I will tell you the statistics. Do you really think he's going to heal you? Are you stupid? You guys know what I'm talking about? He starts whispering that in your ear. He doesn't whisper, hey, God created you out of dirt. This isn't that big a deal. Right? He whispers, you have cancer. You're going to die. That's what he whispers to us, right? Or something like, you know, seriously, you think God is going to take away someone's addiction just because you're praying for him? They call it an addiction for a reason, Chris. They're addicted to something. That means they need it. They want it more than anything in their lives. Do you really think a simple prayer is going to take that addiction from them? They're going to die a junkie. They whisper that stuff in our ear. He doesn't whisper to us, hey, Chris, look what God brought you from. Hey, Chris, what about that person you saw turn from a junkie into a, a great man or a great woman of God? He doesn't remind us of those things. He just says, gosh, I can't believe you believe that. that that's so stupid. Or he may whisper things like, do you seriously think God is going to save your marriage? It's been 20 years. You haven't worked it out with that wench yet. You're not going to work it out now. She's terrible to you. Or why are you staying with that guy? What a loser. You know what? He's making you a loser. You're staying here. You really think a simple prayer is going to make God's going to fix him all of a sudden? He doesn't talk about all the marriages that have been saved. He doesn't tell you about that. He just whispers these 
doubts in your ears. You really think God's going to fix your finances? Really? God doesn't have anything to do with money. Even though the Bible says he created the cattle of a thousand hills and the hills thereon, which means he owns everything. Right? So, I mean, this is what he whispers in our ears. So most of us believe that God can do anything until we need something we see as, as big. You know what I mean? When we or a loved one faces a serious illness or, or trying circumstances, all of a sudden all we can think about is how impossible this situation is and we push God right out of our mind. Or we think, you know, that amount's too big or the odds are too great against us and all these doubts that the enemy is whispering in our ears start taking over our minds when what we should be saying is not my will, but your will be done because your will is perfect as is your love for me and you're going to do what's absolutely best for me. So I'm not going to look at the odds. I'm not going to look at the chances. I'm going to trust in you completely and give this to you completely because you didn't send your son to die for me to let me down now. That's what we should be thinking. You know what I mean? So I just want you to realize what we're facing here. I mean, the things that you see here, God wants to do with us. These great miracles, but he needs us to have that kind of faith and we have to, we have to fight off that that. that temptation to think too much like the world and not enough like the Christians we are. You know, I wonder how many times the enemy has talked you right out of a miracle you were about to experience. I wonder. I wonder how many times when you were right, I mean, right on the edge of stepping across the line from explainable to miracle. I wonder how many times you were right there and you listened to the whispering of the enemy in your ear. You know, and, and here's the reason. Faith can lead to miracles, it still does. But doubt can make us miss those miracles. And James talks about that. James chapter 1, starting in verse 6. He says, But he must ask in faith without any doubting, for the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind, which means they're all over the place. Verse 7, For that man ought not to expect that he will receive what? Anything from the Lord. He said that person shouldn't expect to receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Double-minded means saying, I believe that God can do miracles. I don't know if he'll do it for me. You're unstable. He doesn't have to answer those prayers. Can you imagine what would have happened if Moses would have doubted God when he was right at the shores of the Red Sea? We wouldn't have a great story to rejoice in. We would have an area we could go find the bones of all the people that were slaughtered there. That's the difference. But he did believe. I could preach on that forever. I better move on. Okay. 2 Kings chapter 2, starting in verse 19. This is kind of Elisha's inauguration. It says, Then the men of the city said to Elisha, Behold, now the situation of this city is pleasant, as my Lord sees, but the water is bad, and the land is unfruitful. He said, Bring me a new jar. That's important. Bring me a new jar and put salt in it. So they brought it to him. He went out to the spring of water and threw salt in it and said, Thus says the Lord, I have purified these waters. There shall not be from their death or unfruitfulness, unfruitfulness any longer. So the waters have been purified to this day according to the word of Elisha, which he spoke. Okay, before Elisha even gets the chance to grasp the idea that he's the guy, before he gets settled in to being QB1, you know, before he gets settled into being the starter, before he gets a chance to have a meet and greet, you know, before anything, immediately they come to him with problems. Right? Everybody always dreams of being in leadership, always dreams of being in management. That's the way it works. 
They're like, oh, now you get to sit in the office and do nothing. Yeah, that, that never happened for me. You know, you get in ministry, you're like, yeah, I'm the man now. And everybody goes, yes, you are, and this is broken. You see what I mean? As soon as he becomes the man, they come to him and say, hey, we, uh, hey congratulations, glad you're here. We got a problem. There's a big problem in Jericho because the water is just undrinkable. I mean, we can't grow crops. It's killing all of our land. We can't drink it. We have a real problem here in Jericho. So welcome to the ministry. Help us. This is what happens to him immediately. But the thing they didn't realize is this is no accident. God had him in Jericho where that problem was. He wanted him there when he became a leader because he wanted Elisha to be validated through a genuine miracle that the people of Jericho couldn't deny. Right? Now, remember something. Years and years before this, how many people remember Joshua in the walls of Jericho falling down? How many people remember that story? How many people saw the Veggie Tale version? Do you guys still think about that? Every time I read it, I think about them throwing slushies off the wall at Joshua's army. No, never mind. Anyway. But, you know, years before this, Joshua marched around the walls of Jericho, which was a great city and a great fortress, and the walls fell down. God brought the walls down. Joshua 6.26, we're going to read that here in just a second. But what we may forget is Joshua cursed that place. Joshua cursed Jericho, the city where they were at. That place was cursed by Joshua. Look at this, Joshua 6.26. Then Joshua made them take an oath at that time saying, Cursed, listen to this, Cursed before the Lord is the man who rises up and builds the city Jericho. With the loss of his firstborn, he shall lay its foundation, and with the loss of his youngest son, he shall set up its gates. So here was the curse. Any man who builds this up is cursed, and he's going to lose his firstborn and lose his youngest son if he tries to build this back. That was the curse. Now Jericho was rebuilt, obviously, because that's where Elijah is right at this moment, right? It was built during uh, Ahab's reign, right? And the curse that Joshua pronounced, that God actually pronounced through Joshua, comes true i mean exactly look at this first king 16 24 it says in his days hail the bethelite uh, built jericho he laid its foundations with the loss of abiram his firstborn and set up its gates with the loss of his youngest Segum, according to the word of the lord which he spoke by joshua the son of nun so i guess joshua wasn't playing right it was cursed right it was cursed and everything he said happened well, evidently, the water still remained under Joshua's curse because it was undrinkable. The water was undrinkable. And since they used the water from the city for irrigation, it was also killing crops because it wasn't clean, and it was making the land completely barren. Now, most likely, it had a high saline counter. There was a lot of salt in that water. So that would make it undrinkable, and that would make it, you know, kill every plant life they sprayed it on, right? And... The water was worthless, I mean completely worthless, and that's the way God made it. God made it that way. The crops were failing, people couldn't drink it, and that was all part of God's curse, and yet he puts his man in this situation at this time. And the reason he did that was the only person that can reverse a curse from God is a man who comes from God. Just like a man from God pronounced the curse, it was going to take a man from God to remove that curse. You see what I mean? Now, the only person that could do that was Elisha. If he really took the place of Elijah, if he was really legit who he says he was, not some, you know, wannabe, then he could do a legitimate miracle here. So Elisha says something pretty cool. If you, it's real easy to read right past this. 
He says, bring me a new bowl, a new bowl, one that's never been used, with salt in it. Okay, now the new bowl represented him, represented Elisha, because he was God's new instrument. He was the new guy on the scene, the new instrument of God, right? And the salt, the people had to think he was nuts. He says, bring me a new bowl with salt in it. And they're like, let me get this straight. You are going to fix our salty water problem with salt. He's an idiot. Are you sure this is the guy? I mean, that's what they had to be thinking. He says, bring salt, right? But see, the Israelites believed that salt represented two things. It represented preservation and purification. That's what it represented. So the Israelites would have understood what he was probably going to do with this salt. But you just have to remember who he was dealing with. The people of Jericho believed that, that Baal was the god of fertility, and that meant fertility in man and fertility in the land, making the crops fertile. That's what they believed, right? They believed that it was Baal. But people couldn't drink it or they would die, and the crops weren't growing, so Baal was choking big time. He was failing. This is a perfect opportunity for Elisha to show people, all the people of Jericho, who the real and true God is. So in one gesture, he takes this salt up in this brand new bowl, and he throws it in the water. And says, this water is going to be good from here on. And it was good from there on. All right, so in one gesture, in one gesture, God's new representative, the new bowl, purified the waters that was killing everyone with salt. Right? And afterwards, Jericho's water was perfect, and their land became fertile again, and they grew lush crops. Okay? This is so powerful. Because people immediately said, okay, maybe this, maybe this Baal guy isn't real. Because he just took a bowl of salt and made salty water not salty anymore. With salt. You know what I mean? That's, that's pretty miraculous. Right? And here's the thing. Sometimes we forget that there's nothing God can't do with one person who has true faith. There's nothing he can't do. So we should be like, like Elisha and start seeing problems as opportunities. And we're terrible at that. When something comes on you, it, I mean, and I'm guilty of this too, how many of you actually say, this is probably an opportunity sent from God? When something faces you that's difficult, don't be spiritual. You don't do it very often, do you? You know what we do? We go, why, God? Don't we? Why are you doing this to me? God, I love you and do everything you want me to do, and my car broke down. Right? It's never, it could be an opportunity. It's always, we just don't look at it that way, but we need to start looking at it as opportunities because every time there's a problem that the world sees, so it's usually going to be a big one. Every time there's a big problem in your life that the world can see, that's an opportunity for us to show the world something that we should already know. Right? It's an opportunity for us to let the world know that God is always good and that he is always able to bring hope and life to any situation. That's our opportunity to show people that. Right? And, and it, the thing about the bull, think about it. The bull here that, that we see Elisha use, right, kind of reminds me of new believers. Because when we believe, we become this new vessel for God. The Bible says we become a new creation. Old things have passed away. Right? And we have the ability, through the Word of God, the Bible says we are salt and light, so the Word of God gives us the ability to season or make Jesus appear good to other people and to bring life to them through the power that comes through the word. New believers are kind of like that new bowl of salt. 
I just think this is so powerful, and I think we need to change the way we look at things a little bit. You know, people always say, why doesn't God do that stuff anymore? God's because there's nobody who believes he can. That's why. You know, I have, I have, I'm not going to make this into a you know, miracle message. I'm not going to be the TV guy. Right? But I will say this. I, I've seen many instances where God has done miraculous things, and most people will probably see it and not believe it because their mind doesn't have the faith to understand that God still does miracles. He still doesn't. Let's move on. Okay, this is a pretty neat section because Elisha's just going to bear all here. Okay? 2 Kings chapter 2, verse 23. Then he went up, Elisha, went up uh, from there to Bethel. Or Bethel is how they probably pronounce that. And he was going up, uh, I'm sorry, and as he was going up, by the way, young lads came out from the city and mocked him and said to him, Go up, you bald head. Go up, you bald head. I find this particularly offensive. Okay? Verse 24. When he looked behind him and saw them, he cursed them in the name of the Lord. Then, <laughs> then two female bears came out of the woods and tore up 42 lads of their number. I should not be laughing. Verse 25. He went from there to Mount Carmel, and from there he returned to Samaria. So a lot of people don't understand these verses because they do seem a little extra, right? They do seem kind of, how many people have ever read this and go, what the heck? Be honest, raise your hand. How many people have ever read this and go, uh, did he just say bears ate those guys? Okay, now here's the thing. A lot of Bibles will translate the young lads as young children, which makes it a lot worse. I couldn't laugh at that, bears mauling little kids. That, that, that's, you know. Okay, I might have left a little bit. But anyway, well, they did call him bald head. Come on now. But anyway, there's a couple things that we can clear up just with translational, uh, or translational uh, issues here we can, we can clear up. First of all, the phrase young lads in the Hebrew does not mean children. So the translations that translate that children are just wrong. It's not what it means. does not mean children. It's better translated young men, like ages 17 to early 20s. Young men. That's why the New American Standard, which is generally the most literally word-for-word word accurate, um, the New American Standard says young lads instead of young children. So this wasn't, you know, kids just got out of the nursery and a mean bear ate them. That's not what happened. Okay, it was young men, 17 to 24-ish, right? The second thing you have to remember is when they called him bald head, it probably wasn't about his hair. I know you're thinking, oh, you're just covering up, Chris, because you don't have much hair. No, that's not it. It probably wasn't about his hair. Bald head was a slang that they used back then, a slang term, and it basically was used to disgrace someone because it was, there were several times that God pronounced curses that made people lose their hair. But, but realistically, most, most likely, they were using it as a word of disgrace because they were referring to lepers who had to shave their heads. You know, when lepers were separated, they would have to shave their heads. So when you called somebody a bald head, bald heads were not preferred then. They are... Dead sexy now, but back then, no, just kidding. They were, it was, it was a disgrace. And so they were calling him bald head to disgrace him. Right, like saying he was a leper. They were, they were making fun of him, trying to, to disgrace him, you know what I mean? Because lepers were considered ritually unclean and outcasts. Right, now, now here's, the, here's why I say it probably wasn't about his hair. At that time, men wore a covering. 
Okay, men wore a covering over their heads, and he's walking away from these young men. They probably couldn't even see his head. They couldn't even see his head. This was just, you know, an insult. Right? Now, it's important to pay attention to the words that they said if you understand, want to understand why they were saying it and why they were insulting him. Notice they said, go up, go up, you bald head. Go up. What were they talking to? Who just went up? Elijah just went up. He was carried up in a whirlwind, and everybody saw it. It's kind of tough to miss that one. Right? So they saw him taken up. Elijah, everybody knew he was a man of God. Now they were basically mocking Elisha's claim to be Elijah's successor. That's what they were mocking. So what they were saying is, why don't you go up to God like Elisha did, you phony? You're an outcast. You're never going to be Elijah. Why don't you go up if you're like him? You see what they were saying? They weren't just making fun of his hairdo. They probably didn't know if he had hair or not. If they were making fun of his hairdo, if they were making fun of him for being bald, I would have talked trash if I was him. I would have turned around and said, yeah, who's bald head now, kibbles and bits? Right? I would have made fun of him. I would have turned right around on him. But listen, that wasn't what it was about. They were trying to mock him for claiming to be the replacement of Elijah. And this was a serious offense. This is a serious offense because they were casting doubt on God's chosen servant. Okay, they were casting doubt on him. So this was really serious. They weren't just insulting Elisha. They were insulting God. God chose him. They were insulting Elisha's claim to be Elijah's replacement, and they were insulting God who chose him. Right? And Elijah couldn't allow his position and God's decisions to be mocked like that. He could not allow that. That could hinder his effectiveness with the people if he let that go. People had to know he was who he said he was. God did make the right choice. He was empowered, and he could not let that go. You know, so, I mean, he just couldn't bear that. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry. He didn't mind bearing their burdens, but he couldn't bear the insults. Right? I can keep going. Right? So he hands out a discipline that only God could do. Because God has power over all things, humans, animals, even nature. God has control over all, over all that. So when he cursed them and these two female bears, notice he chose females because he wanted it to be done completely. They wanted it to be completely mauled. Guys, you know what I'm, what I'm saying? These two female bears, they're probably tearing them up going, why didn't you take the trash out? No. Two female bears came out and mauled all of them. And this is a stern lesson to everyone about the seriousness of mocking God and mocking God's servants. That's why this happened. It wasn't him walking by and got his feelings hurt because they made fun of him being bald. So he made his trained pet bears eat them. I've heard so many people say, well, God's so good. Why back in that one book did he let a bear eat little kids? It wasn't little kids. And it wasn't about his hair. It wasn't about being insulted. This guy was mocking God. And they were probably pagans, right? Now, there's one thing we can take away from this, and then I'll close, hopefully. Um, there's one thing we can take away from this, and, and that is it's dangerous to question God's ways. Okay, it, it's just dangerous to question God's ways. See, God's ways don't have to line up with the idealism of this world. That's something that we have to get through our minds. Okay, God's ways, well, let me be honest, God's ways will never line up with the idealism of this world. Let me just be honest. Never. Right? Nor do God's ways have to make sense to us or have our approval. 
God's not going to say, well, I would do that, but I'm afraid Tom won't like it. Tom, you let me know when you're good with it, and I'll do that. Tom goes, I'll get back with you. That's not how it works. God doesn't need your approval. He doesn't need you to understand it. He needs you to trust that what he does is the best for you and for everyone else, or he wouldn't be doing it. That's what he needs, right? Just trust him. God can do anything or use anyone he wants to accomplish his will. The only thing he can't do is violate his own word. So if someone comes to you and says God is doing something and it's a blatant violation of God's word, then it's not God doing it. You know, there's another team on the field, right? So it's not God doing it. But as long as he doesn't violate his word, it's fair game. He can do whatever he wants, whether you believe it or not. It doesn't matter. Believers today, I think we try too hard to make our theology fit in with the world's mindset. And that's impossible. See, we want God's ways to align with our politics or our distorted worldview, and it's not going to happen. We should line everything else we believe up with what we believe about God. You know, people say, well, I'm having trouble with God because he doesn't agree with this. That's not how it works. Believe in God. Believe in what God says. Believe in what God can do. And that's what should form your opinions on your politics and on your worldview and all the other things. That should, they, they should be formed by your faith, not vice versa. You don't ask God, be like me or I won't believe in you. And he's going to say, you're the one that will suffer for that, my friend, not me. Right? So that's something we've got to really, really work on. Because I'm telling you what, I, it, especially this time of year, and I'm not going to get political because it drives me insane, Christian people fighting back and forth and, and, and bickering with each other on social media and all that stuff. And I'm like, well, you know what? The devil's loving this. Let me give you guys a secret that maybe we've forgotten. We all have our who we want to be in the White House, who we want to be in the State House, who we want to be in the local, you know, political positions. It's okay to have those views. It's okay to have that. But know this. God is in control. No man is going to change God's will. No man is so powerful that he can change God's plan. And no matter who they call the leader of the free world, God is the leader of everything. God is in complete control. And there's no election. There's no politics. None of that is going to make him the least bit powerful. He is in control. He's in control on November 3rd, November 4th, November 5th, maybe December by the time we find out who won. But anyway, he's in control all the time. So when people say, are you worried about this? You worried about that? I'm like, listen, I've got my choices who I want for what. But here's, here's my number one choice. God is in control. I will submit to him. He is my king, no matter who is my president. Okay, because listen, if, if you're going to try to make God fit your politics or make God fit your worldview, people who do that, remember, questioning God can be a bear. Right? I'm going to leave it there. I'll close right there. If I'm going to ask you, would you please bow your heads? This is your first time. We always like to give an invitation. And the reason we do that is I believe the word of God is powerful. I know a lot of places don't really give an invitation anymore. Um, that's their problem. I believe that, that God speaks to people through the word of God. And so while every head is bowed, I don't ask people to come forward. I don't do all that stuff. I just, I just give you this opportunity. Where if you'd like me to pray for you, I will. If you're not sure where you stand with God or you just want me to pray, make eye contact with me. Put your head right back down. Bless those people. I'm not going to point you out, and I won't chase you down after church. Bless those people. 
And if you're listening or watching online, uh, God knows your heart. I'll be praying for you. But I say this a lot. I really want to I really want to pray for believers today. Because we are so mesmerized by the things we see in the Old Testament personalities and all the miracles and stuff that happened. And we forget that God could still do that if we just let him. God could still use any one of you to change a nation. You know, it might start with your community, it might start with your family, but he can change a nation with you. So I want to pray for us because we're supposed to be the ones who are making the real impact in this world. Let's pray. God, I thank you so much for all that you do. Lord, I thank you. I say this all the time that you could love someone like me. I don't deserve your grace. I don't deserve the love and blessings you put in my life, and I never will. None of us do. And that's what's so amazing about your love and what's so amazing about your grace is that that you love us despite the fact that we are not worthy. You have such a desire to be our father that you sent your own son to die so that all we'd have to do is believe in what he did as full payment for our sin. And if we can believe that, your word promises we'll have eternal life. And when we hear that, it sounds so easy. It's too good to be true. It is too good. But God, we know it wasn't cheap and it wasn't easy because Jesus paid a great price and it was very difficult, but he, he paid it. So we don't have to. We just have to believe in the price he paid. If there's someone here or someone listening or watching who hasn't done that, I just pray that they would believe that. And if they do, I pray that they would reach out to us or reach out to someone close to them or near them. And God, for those of us who are believers, it is so easy to get off track to get sucked into the politics and get sucked into the worldview and to get sucked into worrying and caring and arguing about things that a thousand years from now won't mean a thing. God, let us remember our mission. Our mission is to share the light of Christ with everyone we come in contact with. We want to live lives that reflect your love and grace. God, let us always remember you're in charge. We can do the best that we can do, but ultimately you're in charge. Let us trust in that. Make us as powerful as Elijah, as Elisha, as Moses, as all these people. Let us remember they were just men who gave you complete control. We just thank you so much, God, for all that you do. We pray that you would go with us as we leave here and keep us safe. And if you don't return to take us home before we meet again, we just pray that you would bless us to come together and give you all the praise, honor, and glory you're so worthy of at least one more time. We thank you and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.